hosted the men's Olympic trials the day before the New York City Marathon. Young Americans' effort to make the Olympic team and put it on the center stage of the biggest weekend in running. And so it was all very exciting. And we had something, except we had a tragedy on Saturday. And we had a young athlete die on the course. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? I'm here today with Mary Wittenberg, who is the CEO of Virgin Sport, the newest company within Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Group. And she is on a mission to revolutionize healthy lifestyle experiences and inspire the world to move together. Prior to her role leading Virgin Sport, Mary was the president and CEO of the New York Roadrunners and race director for the New York City Marathon. Under her leadership, the positive impact of the New York Roadrunners and the New York City Marathon grew substantially. And in 2013, her final year at the helm, it became the largest marathon ever, boasting more than 50,000 finishers and raising over 25 million for charity. She's the first woman to lead the NYRR and pioneered the World Marathon Majors and National Running Day while expanding their commitment to the five boroughs of New York City through youth running events and a year-round calendar of major events. She is a former Olympic marathon trials qualifier and currently an avid runner, aspiring cyclist, and fitness enthusiast. So my first question for you, Mary, is why do you run? Oh, I love to run. Uh, running gives me peace. Running's my place uh, of exploration. It's my place of adventure. It's today a place of social and connection. One of the beauties of running, your, your relationship with it really changes over time. 25, 30 years ago, it was about trying to win. And today, it's in a busy life. It, it fulfills more the connection to others and the chance to just get out and get moving. And, and it's probably as much mind as it is body. Yeah. And I've just shared all of your accomplishments, but I want to know a little bit more about the Mary before those accomplishments and who she was. Well, we are all works in progress, so I'm really happy to uh, to talk about where I've been, and I'm excited about where I'm going as well. Yeah. Um, so I know that you started out um, at a law firm. Is that correct? I did, and um, I went from undergrad to law school to being a lawyer, which is a little bit unusual today, where people often take breaks along the way. And it's interesting, having talked to you earlier, I also started running when I was senior in college, ran in law school, and was running as a young lawyer. But it was um, something that at the time I didn't want to be defined by. I wanted to be the best lawyer I could be. And I look back at that and chuckle a little bit because it was kind of cool to be the runner that I was and, and being able to marry the run and the, and the law career, something I look back and realize is pretty nice opportunity that I had. And so you said you didn't want to be the known as that runner. Tell me a little bit more about the career that you had running up to that point and how you finished that. Well, for me, running was always recreation, even when I was trying to make the Olympic trials, because 
I grew up the oldest of seven, pretty modest means. Uh, I paid for my own college. So I was, I was on, always only saw a path that was finish school, get to work. So running is not something I ever thought about pursuing as a professional, but I knew qualifying for Olympic trials was a pretty big deal. I was not in the position you were to, to be that close to the team. I was farther back. But I do realize today, Ali Kiefer in the 2017 New York City Marathon was a 244 marathoner, not far, that's about the same time I ran, and she just finished fifth in the New York City Marathon with a massive personal best. Who knows? Maybe I could have done that. I don't, re- I don't regret that I didn't, but it was never... Today, there's a lot more resource and support around young runners, but at the time, my path was get to work, pay off my loans, mm. and running is is a nice thing that I get to do along the way and, and feel pretty good about because I was pretty pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. And did you have any um, mental things that you did for yourself while you were running uh, back then that kind of motivated you? I loved running, and I loved having a fuller life than just being a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I learned in law school that a purely academic life was definitely not for me. And it yeah. was, I actually ran, it was like running straight into a wall when I got to law school. I grew up in a family that cared about sports, cared about, you know, we were involved in our church, we were involved in our neighborhood, and Academics were important, but they definitely were not the be-all and end-all. Maybe it would, <laughs> would have been bad if we had been a little more focused on all academics, but we weren't. But when I got to law school and all of a sudden everybody only cared about grades, I was so thankful that I was running with the men's cross-country team. I was at Notre Dame, and I was running with the men's cross-country team, undergrad team, and it was an incredible outlet for me. So for me, I knew graduating from law school I never wanted to just be the best lawyer as much as that was the top goal. I, I needed to have all the parts of my life. So running really filled, as a young lawyer, filled the need to be pursuing excellence in something else, too, and just having fun with something I really loved and made me feel good. You said you were running with the men's team. Was there a women's team? So it was a little while ago. Uh, <laughs> so no, we only had a, there was only a men's team at the time. So and I know it seems crazy today. And by my third year, the women's team had started my third year of law school. But no, when I joined, there was only a men's team. And the NCAA's uh, rules were different where the team could have some other people involved. So we had a divinity student. We have a guy who went on to be an Olympic pentathlete. We had a theologian in the graduate school. So the four of us got to be part of the team, which was, that's a whole podcast in itself. It was an extraordinary <laughs> opportunity. These guys were like brothers and they, they, uh, they, I really, I learned a lot from them. And I also, at the time when I was an undergrad, I was a rower during the summers at the West Side Rowing Club where they had women's teams, but my college only had a men's team. So I was a coxswain for the men's team. So I learned an extraordinary amount in undergrad and law school by playing sports with boys. Did you ever feel out of place? No, I've got to say part of that may be the oldest, being the oldest of seven in a pretty sports crazed household. So we never had a, a any sense that girls couldn't do what boys could do. I was very aware that we didn't have as many opportunities. I liked baseball a lot better than softball. And 
baseball wasn't something we could play, and I wasn't very good at it anyway, and I was not very good at softball either. But I didn't think there wasn't – I never really thought, well, there's something we can't do. Um, I just – and I had equal – I had three brothers and three sisters, so maybe that helped too. But I um, – no, I was, I was lucky. I felt part of, part of those teams. When you got into the law firm – so I read that you were the only female partner there at one point. What was that like? Because I, I also went from my gymnastics career and I went into finance in that desk job. And I remember kind of banging my head against the wall and feeling like I was just another cog in the wheel. And uh, what was that experience like for you? Well, important clarification. So I was the only, I grew to be the only woman partner on the project finance and leasing team at the time, or the first one. Mm-hmm. So the law firm had plenty, I don't know if we had plenty, <laughs> we, but we had women partners. And I was associate for a good long time, I don't know, eight, maybe nine years. Um, that experience in law firm is where I became a huge proponent of women in the sports place and in, in the sorry women in the in the workplace and began to realize oh wait a minute why are the women on the securities registration deals and the men are on the or on the 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 registration filings and the men are on the deals and and I would see some differences and. That's where I really became – I had a great experience. I had an amazing law firm. But I, I definitely began to look out for the younger women as I grew more senior. And I definitely advocated for women having the same opportunities as men in terms of being – especially on deals. Deals were sort of the, the – uh, what people wanted to be part of. Yeah. Was there ever a time that you felt like you weren't good enough? As a lawyer, all the time. All the time. What was so great for me about being a lawyer is now I know I'm probably more on the spectrum of um, creative and um, entrepreneurial. And what was amazing about my law firm experience is it was much more about being exacting and paying attention to detail and being highly analytical. And as a result, I think now I have actually a really nice blend of both sides of my brain and and my skill set. But it took years of red memo, you know, red pen across memos, and years of just trying to be better every single day and living up to a standard of what really were brilliant and experienced lawyers. Was there ever? Uh a moment where you felt like you couldn't do it or you wanted to quit? Definitely. In fact, this is the importance of mentorship. So I was um, at our firm for several years, and I would go into reviews, and I would hear all about, uh, you're excellent with uh, your interpersonal, with, with our clients and with our our associates, your and our partners, your interpersonal skills are really great, and I would immediately discount that. I'd sit there and think, okay, that's great, but that's the easy stuff. How am I doing my analytical skills, and how is my writing, and how am I doing in the more quantit, you know, more quantitative um, areas? And it took me a long time to realize, actually, 
not everybody has the interpersonal side. <laughs> not everybody is as intuitive. Not everybody's emotional intelligence is that high. And all of those are, are really important elements of of client relationships and, and getting deals done. So through that period, I definitely thought this is not for me. And then I was lucky to begin working for a leader in a team that was um, primarily doing all deals, and that was a great fit for me, and I really flourished. But if I had stayed on some of the teams I had been on in litigation was an area, for example, um, that I did some short stints in, that I just I wouldn't have I would not have succeeded. No question about it. What were some of the thoughts that would go through your mind in some of those the hardest times? I'm not smart enough. I'm not careful enough. I am not working hard enough, which has never been true of anything I've done in my <laughs> life, um, for better or worse. Uh, you know, things like that. But I learned, you know, to also, it's so interesting when you're a young lawyer, and this is true of several kinds of jobs, if you're on a complex case, for example, initially it is like someone three years ahead of you or five years ahead of you is speaking another language. And you don't realize, well, it's just because they've been doing it for three years or they've been doing it for five years. And you have to give yourself time to catch up, time to realize you can only have the experience you've had so far and, and you can learn. So the in the end, it was an amazing process because I learned, I, we're learning every day. And we can make mistakes every day, but it just makes us smarter the next day. So it it ended up being an amazing experience for me. Yeah, I think that's that's something, this idea of wanting everything and wanting everything now is, I think, this plague that is coming over everyone, especially the younger generation. And we're thinking, you know, we're getting all this information quickly, and yet there's there's not that real wisdom that we yeah. can actually, that we're willing to wait for. I've recently become intrigued by this topic that I never gave enough credit to experience. And mm. we aren't always going to have the benefit of experience, and we don't always have the chance of a redo. But, man, do we learn a lot every single day. So I'm, I've been going through this really interesting phase of just, like, loving the next day, too, and realizing... I know more. I can do more. I can, and sometimes that might mean I can. I get to do less. I may know now that I don't have to do everything I used to think I had to do or, or should do, quote unquote. Um, so you, we have to. I think we can probably help people realize a little bit earlier that life really is a journey. Mm-hmm. You know, we never know how lucky we're going to be in terms of how long that is, but it's 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 a journey and. We should go for whatever we want to go for at any point in time, but realize, you know, we're only we only have the experience we have as we enter any given day, and and we'll have that much more experience the next day. Yeah, that's the that's the mistake that I always make, where I'm always setting new goals for myself, and I'm every time I achieve that goal, I kind of tick off that box and forget about the fact that I succeeded, mm-hmm. and it just every goal becomes a subsequent um, tick box that you have to, that you've already ticked and then you just forget about it. It's like another proving ground to do more and more and more. I have learned to celebrate. And yeah. part of the way I've learned to celebrate is by working in, actually, all the way back to deals, but especially in working at New York Roadrunners and at Virgin Sport. When when one puts on events, so much goes into an event and things can go wrong. And what you realize over time is, one, 
often things are going to go wrong, and often there are things you can do better, and you can't wait to get to the next chance to do the next event. But also you learn. Lots of times things can go wrong outside your control. And if in either case, if you don't recognize what went right and give that pause to say, you know what, we got so much out of this. And even if we feel like we didn't get anything out of it, I've learned to really celebrate what we put into something. And I and I really try to use that in life now, and I try to use it to make sure it's it's something I share with my kids too. But that mm-hmm. took a long time to get there. Yeah. What were some of those formative experiences that helped you realize that? Uh, probably one stands out um, at New York Roadrunners most. In 2007, we hosted this biggest weekend in running, and we hosted the immense Olympic trials the day before the New York City Marathon. And it was a massive undertaking. It was all all in the spirit of we wanted to take uh, our sport and our, our young American um, young Americans' effort to make the Olympic team and put it on the center stage of the biggest weekend in running. And so it was all very exciting. And we had something, and the team worked really hard. So they planned double duty for Marathon Weekend. They uh, We went into the weekend really well positioned for it to be extraordinary. And it was in every single way, except we had a tragedy on Saturday. And we had a young athlete die on the course. Mm-hmm. Um and that was shocking, devastating, really, really, really hard. There was nothing anyone could have done about it. And instead of realizing in the moment, and I, I did realize in the moment, I was able to to really, we supported the family, we worked with the family, we worked, we had a bit, we had the marathon the next day. We were able to really come together and all honor the young athlete who had passed away, named Ryan Shea, honor his memory on Sunday, on one of the greatest stages in the world. But after that, I think I really went into a funk. And I realize now, or I realize not that long thereafter, that that was understandable in terms of deep personal feelings about it. But the team did everything they could have done. And there was so much that was amazing about that weekend. And you have to be really careful in in letting even something that is about the most significant thing that's happened in, in had happened in my career there, even then you you have to be help everyone else who's who's feeling pain about that too realize you know what you guys you you you, you delivered you did so much all this other all these other elements that were in your control went really really well and. And not to uh, and not to forget that that people, especially your team, take things really personally. And in and I should have been along the way more aware of their need to know that, and not wait till a year later. We could all look back and say, you know what, we honor Ryan. We did our best. We carried on. We took care of fifty thousand other people. We did all these things that. A lesser team couldn't have and wouldn't have. So that, yeah. that's, a, that's definitely a, a learning that stands out. Well, it's evident that you really care about all the individual runners who have come through. And uh, my question is, what drives you? Or what, what has driven you and what continues to drive you today? I, I am really driven by making the most of every day and not the most in terms of a checklist um the most in terms of 
how much of my life is spent on something that can make a difference for other people. And probably my biggest learning was back in the law firm days of realizing every day is not making that much difference at this point. And I was I was already a partner and I was pretty deep into a career and saying, wait a minute, this is not what I meant to do with my life. So today I I think when I look I think what's become pretty clear for me is it's really important for my career to be directly related to to something I really believe in and something can make a difference because I love to get really involved in what I do. And so I'm really involved in my family. I really care about being healthy. I really care about community and making a difference. And I think for me, for my career and job to be outside of that, making a difference, seems like too much time to spend out of, out of these precious days mm-hmm. rather than having a career that does have that, give that potential to make a difference for other people. Mm-hmm. And just so we can situate, how many years were you at that law firm? I was there for 10 years, okay. and then I was 17 years at New York Gardeners, which is so hard for me to believe. Wow. And now I've been two and a half at Virgin Sport. Great. What was that transition like? Like, there must have been some moment where you're like, I'm out of here. Like, I got to pursue the things that drive me and my values, and you got to New York Roadrunners. But what was that moment? There sure was. And I'll say, in both times I've moved um, careers, nobody I don't know that many other people understood the move. Um, at that time, I had made partner, and there was definitely a light bulb moment. I was in the middle of a deal. It was spring, I think, 96. I was about to make partner. I wasn't yet partner. I think I made partner literally that weekend. Um, I was leading this really complex deal and the business people didn't fully understand the deal and they wanted to get the deal closed. And I was, I, I was working really hard with the team. I think we were up close to three nights in a row. It was insane. I have not had a Diet Coke since that day. We were drinking Diet Coke and not eating right, like eating pretzels and, you know, whatever. We were just all about the deal. And it was in that moment I was sitting across the table. I laugh now because I'm sure I'm his age. But at the time, I was sitting across from a table from a, a partner at a really at a great law firm and thinking, is this what I want to do for the next 20 years of my life? And it wasn't just the staying up all night and and – it was just the, to what end? To what end? And I think it was probably the multiple nights being awake. And really, the next morning, we went to sleep, and we had funded this deal. And I realized, it's Good Friday, and we just funded into escrow. And now we have to sit on that money over the weekend. And there are some things I was worried about us, why that w- wasn't the smartest thing. And I thought, I'm not at my best like this. But it was mostly this this moment of, Okay, it used to be the quest to be great at whatever I was doing. So in those moments, I would try to be great at the next deal, right? And instead, it was time out. To what end? I had never meant to go to law firm forever. I meant to go for three years and then get involved in sports. And I had this sort of mission-driven side, too. Um, So I knew I wanted to do something different. But what happened was I was young, and I got into it, and I was learning a lot. And I kept going, and that weekend was the weekend I said, 
no more. To to what end? Mm-hmm. And then you quit after that? No. And so then I'm a partner right <laughs> after that. And people are shaking my hand. And I have tears coming down my eyes. And they're saying, oh, you're so happy. And I'm thinking, no, I didn't mean to do this. And I let myself, the lesson is, I let myself get caught up in the hunt. Right? It's the quest. You're about to make partner. And I remember saying to my husband about two years before, you know, I'm not really sure I, I, I want to do this. And I thought, you know what? I'm being... um. I'm being defensive. I'm being, I don't want to hope to make partner, right? And that was probably true, but what I wasn't checking myself was just because everyone else wants to make partner does not mean, and just because it is the sign of, yes, you you can do this, you're excellent at this, it doesn't mean that's what's right for my life. So I probably lost some years there of really in the hunt for something that wasn't that important to me. Now, in fairness, I've I really like the people I worked with. And so what happens for someone like me is you do get caught up in, you know, being there for other people and really wanting to spend time with them and appreciating everything they do for you. But in the end, that probably wasn't good for anybody. It wasn't great. Then after I came off that deal, I felt indebted. I couldn't say I was going to leave because I made partner. You can't leave after you made partner. And so I spent a year at least trying to just hang in there. And then it wasn't good at all a year later when I had to say, especially to the partner who worked really hard and supported me to say, well, I don't think I want to do this. He could have spent his time and effort on someone else. So that was a huge defining period for me. And and I've learned, I think everyone that's competitive and that tries to do well at what they do has to be really careful of this. I've learned to make sure that the race I'm in is the one I want to win. Yeah, that's that's such a great lesson. And I think it goes back to this idea of norms. And we're all, we all have these the external norms that have been defined for us of what's successful and what's worthy of pursuing. Yeah. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in it and forget what you really want. And you can have, you've got exactly. And I think I had inferiority complex because I went, I never thought about it that way till just now, but I went, you know, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, which I loved. I didn't have this big sphere of picture of where did I want to go to college. And as the oldest, I was going to go to college at home. I went to Canisius. Why did I go to Notre Dame? Did I even look at what are the top law schools now? I grew up Irish Catholic in Notre Dame's big college, and I'll go there. I mean, it sounds ridiculous now when there's all this time and attention spent on where people are going to go to school. But I think I always, once I got into a big law firm and I'm working with people you know, at Ivy League, from Ivy Leagues and all the big schools, you know, of course, what I know today is none of that matters. Once you start working, none of that matters. It might make it easier for you in some cases, but it doesn't matter years later, right? It's so hard to extract yourself from that rat race. But it's really hard to not be trying to prove yourself for the simple sake of proving yourself. Yeah. Did you ever have the sensation that time was running out to achieve certain things? It's very interesting. I'm having an interesting sensation right now. So this is my first startup. And all I keep thinking of I am so excited for the team I'm working with because I can do a few more startups over time. They're going to do a lot. I'm with Virgin Sports Startup. They're going to do a lot. They are getting this experience at late 20s, early 30s, and I'm thinking, that's fabulous. Do you know how much they're going to do with this experience? And it makes me so happy. And so for me, it's the first time I'm thinking, how many more 
you know, new opportunities am I going to create over over my future years? Because I want to do this for a while, right? And really build this. And and I want to take these learnings and then see, you know, see what else makes sense over time. So for the first time, I've always, for the first time, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit aware of, wow, time does, time does run out. Most importantly at home, I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old. And they aren't that far from going to college to not living at home. And you don't realize when they're young, you know it's going to go fast. The cliches are so true. Time (laughs) just flies. So I'm super excited about the time when they graduate from college and they're in their careers and we're still close. But I love this time when they're fully home and we're a close family and I hope we're going to always be very close, but they're not going to be home all the time. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm aware for the first time, I would say, in both areas of, of life and of, of work and home that time's running out. Maybe to a fault, I didn't think that way mm-hmm. at, at other points in my career or my life at home. So what do you think were the kind of underlying fears when you were kind of at that law firm and you, you you knew intuitively that that's not what you wanted to do and yet something kept you there. You said you love the team, but I always think that when you follow someone's stress, you get to the root of their fear. That's so interesting. I um, I I definitely, you know, had this concern. I always had this sensation that came from my, again, growing up, that I, I really had to be independent. Like I, I knew I had to be able to take care of myself. And and so being in a good job really mattered. And, and it was always to start this foundational level. But then um, once you're in it, you, you keep going and think, well, are other jobs going to be as stable? Which is so ironic now that I'm in a startup. <laughs> but, um, but for me, I had, to, I had to get that foundation set first. And I, I, I know now I probably could take a different path, but I, I didn't. I wasn't brave enough to do that at the time. But then, what shifted? I was working so hard that my concern became: Wait a minute, can we have a family and do this? Also, now I know you can, but at the time, that didn't feel like a great setup for me. So that was the other big thing that spurred me to say: Okay, this is a really good time to go find something I love because I know. The way I'm wired, I'm going to work hard. So mm-hmm. if I'm going to – if my husband and I were going to raise a family together, it was going to be really important that I loved what I was doing all the time because that that makes a big difference um, and that I could have some more flexibility than than I, I felt I had. A lesson there is, again, I probably had more flexibility than I thought I had, but being wired again the way I am, I was – I would deliver to what people expected. So – I wouldn't have, I don't know at that time, I was mid-30s, and it's so different now, but I don't know at that time that I would have been strong enough to say, I'm leaving. Hmm. And leaving not for the not for a new job, but I'm leaving because I gotta get home. It it was a different it was a different time then, but most importantly I was probably less mature that way at that time. And now and that's a fabulous thing about working for Richard Branson, but over my years at New York Roadrunners, too, it was never somebody telling me what I had to stay and do. And and I, I knew I could take the time I needed to take, but I needed an environment that was nurturing that way, or I would have tried, I, I'd be concerned that I would have tried to just keep hitting the mark of yeah. someone else's. 
yeah, schedule and someone else's expectations and, and try to mirror their schedule, which would not have been a good thing. Yeah, that's so interesting that you talk about that being your mindset because that's exactly how I am too. And maybe that's kind of an ingrained athlete yeah. mentality. It's like someone gives you a mark and you just make that mark. Yeah. And I've always tried to explain why when, you know, people tell me like, well, they tell me like, can you do this? I'm like, Literally, if you give me something to do, like there's just no possibility that I won't do it, I, and I and I'll do it well. Yeah. And and I was like, I just don't know how not to do it yeah. well. And but the danger of that is that you don't realize who you're doing it for. So exactly, I think what's so important is knowing that about yourself. Then. And myself, it's which things do I not do? Because I'm not good at doing something halfway. I'm just not. Mm-hmm. So what I probably have learned most is uh, the power of pause, the power of really saying, okay, wait a minute. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Don't be the first to raise your hand because maybe that actually is not what you need to go be best at right now. And... There's probably something in our personalities that made us athletes in the first place. And that has a lot to do with the level of excellence we're going to try to pursue in, in the things that we do. Um, but I've also learned there's some things, there are some things I do halfway that are things that are really important to everybody. I do not try to be a great cook. Me neither. <laughs> at all. I don't try to be, well, I have some friends that are, are really impressive. Like, they can be really good at a lot of things, including that. And I think, man, I just can't. I have to check that one off the box, and I have to move that one off the list. Fuel yeah. <laughs> I love the idea, yeah. but what, care, what I care more about is sitting together yes. with yeah. my family and my friends. And I'd love to be great at it, but it's just I, I have to. That's something that has to go on the list of I, I'm not going to. I'm just not. It doesn't fit yeah. the the, it doesn't make the list of the most important priorities for me. Yeah. You mentioned a couple times that uh, the phrase, well, now I know that I could have done that. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there are things that people now as they're going through their careers could know earlier than, you know, having to have to go through that experience and, and looking back and saying that? I love that question. I think it's um, the most important thing to know. It's more philosophies to know, I think or decide they're most important for you, now, yeah, you can know, keep your eye on what's most important for you. And I don't think you can look out 20 years, or t- I don't even know you can look out five years, but, you, but I love the book Design Your Life, and I'm always recommending it, especially to younger people I talk to that are at moments of career change. Who's the author? Um, it's the two guys from Stanford at the business school. Sorry, I can't remember the names. Um, Design your who life. Who basically they took the concept of rapid prototyping, product prototyping, and applied it to your life. So it Got says it. basically if you look ahead, there are probably three different lives that could make most sense for you. If you care about home, career, making a difference, playtime, fun time, there's probably three different paths you can take. And if you really, at least, and if you really play out in your mind in five years, or three to five years, where might I be? Those three might look really different, and they all might be really satisfying to you. So their philosophy is 
do some talking and iterating about what those pathways look like, like we do about a new product launch. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't just plan it and then launch it. You talk to a lot of people about it. So it's a way to actually more hear yourself and test your philosophies. But the point that I like there is we can probably be happy in a whole variety of of different um, lives for ourselves. And you know what? Pick the general areas. What's going to be most important to you? Not what exactly are you doing, but what relationship do you want with your health and well-being? What relationship do you want with friends and family? What relationship do you want with community? What what, what kind of success do you want to to, or how do you define success? And I think it's so important to keep that in mind regularly, or you can really end up in these these chases that mm-hmm. are living someone else's dream. Yeah, yeah. And I I recently heard the um, the notion that happiness is a habit. I feel like I've heard it before, but it just you know, it's so easy, especially now being in New York, getting wrapped up in the energy and just thinking that you will be happy once you achieve X, Y, Z, and you forget about that journey and you forget to realize that it is about liking what you do and liking who you're around and making that a habit every day. Yeah, I'll tell you, um, I've been really fortunate because by doing deals and doing events and now doing startup, they, the similarity across all is you tend to look at the end of the deal, the end of the event, the the ultimate uh, check mark on growth or exit or the like in a startup. And in every case, if you just do that, you, you really you, you're you're gonna lose chunks of life instead of mm-hmm. being able to really look at every day. And it's been it's been great through the startup process of really reminding myself. It is, it is a journey. I, you don't wake up and start up, and the next day it's 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 scaled, or you 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 have to look at things incrementally. But um, it, it it is it is really all in the day to day journey and making sure you're staying on path to where you want to end up. But if if we only measure it by the objective result, probably a whole lot of the time we'll be really happy. But some of the time. We're not, and mm-hmm. it doesn't mean the journey was a waste. Um, I think probably the biggest thing I would tell somebody coming through their, you know, get earlier in their career or earlier in their life is it, it really, each day just leads to the opportunity to start the next day. And if we make the most of each one, and that doesn't mean put in the most stuff. It means what's important today and it can't be this long list every single day or just and you can't look at I, I'm saying live it every day but don't look at it every day live mm-hmm. every day that way but look at it in periods of time yeah. okay did I, did I ultimately feel good about the way I just spent my time and if you're not feeling good you know in periods of maybe earlier on it's many months maybe it's a year that don't feel shorter to me if I don't feel good about the time I spent then I gotta course correct a little bit and make sure I'm getting what really matters to me that time in because nobody else is gonna stop to ask oh are you getting what's most important to you in no they're not they're, they mm-hmm. have expectations to you whether it's to your to your to your family or your boss or your church or your any other group that you're trying to take care of they are t- trying to do something for they there you have to. Look, they're looking out their own window. Not is your. Are you are you 
fulfilling for yourself what you need to fulfill. Yeah. One of the things you touched upon was outcomes and something that I've been trying to work on and I realized I was doing this wrong before is that you worry, worry, worry about making a decision, right? (laughs) Then you make a decision and then you worry, worry, worry about how people are reacting to it and, you know, what's going to happen, what are the consequences. And I, I had this mindset shift yesterday where I basically was like, okay, you can worry and think and plan all you want before that decision. And then the moment you make the decision, just let it go. You have to completely detach yourself from that outcome because you've already done what you needed to to make that informed decision. And that's the source of unhappiness I realize a lot of times that I have and a lot of people have is that even after you've made that decision, it's you try and worry about it, but there's no use in doing it anymore. I, I, I love the 76ers, <laughs> Philadelphia 76ers, their phrase is trust the process. So one, you know, it takes a while to get the process right, but if you learn to trust the process of decision-making. And you know what? Why is decision-making hard? Because nine times out of ten, it's not clear. We make decisions in the fog all the time. And guess what? They often can go either way. So so long as, the or any one of a number of ways, so long as you learn what process do you need, I have to be around people who think differently than me. I have to. I get excited, and it's easy for me to sweep other people right along. I have to be around people who, who, who have that power of pause, who step back and say, okay, sounds great, Mary, but do we think about this and this and this? So you have to know what do you need in your life to help you make the best decisions. If you're by yourself or you're with other people, what, what do you have to do? And then a great thing about having a public job that I've had at different, especially at New York Roadrunners, guess what? Uh, people have a lot of different opinions. So you've got to stay confident. Sometimes you are going to pivot off a decision, but nobody's ever going to like every decision you make, whether it's an internal decision, especially at work, whether it's an internal decision and someone on the team doesn't like it or it's external. You've got to stay confident of, do I think this is the right thing at this time? And did I do my best to get as much information as I could, knowing nine times out of ten it's going to be an imperfect amount of information. Mm-hmm. But you can't, like, I, I've, we've all learned this, you can't, um, you'll waste more time and energy, whether it was the right decision or wrong decision. I definitely go back at the end of years or the end of a deal or then an event and I say, okay, what did we learn? I love putting on the wall. What did we learn? <laughs> what did I learn? But it's all for, for the purpose of what might we do differently next time? Not we should have, we could have, yep. why didn't we? Yeah, shooting is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, have there been particular decisions that you can look back on that you felt like you learned a lot from that might have been a you might have taken a different decision? You yeah, know? I think there are definitely times that I've learned. There's not many actually. I if I if I look at it on a granular level, again, you learn a lot every single day. I feel like mainly more about approach. Mm-hmm. Efficiency. What about some of the decisions you're facing now in terms of the direction of um, where you're going to take Virgin Sport? There's a great example. Um, I'm trying to think of. So, so you have like you have along the way these kind of daily decisions that I don't think are worth looking at. But then you have big decisions, and for me, a big decision, a big opportunity at Virgin Sport really was what product we would go with, right? So we knew we wanted to move the world through sport. We 
knew we wanted to complement what else was out there. So a lot of people in the space come in, elbows, elbows out, we're going to do this, and it will look a lot like what someone else is doing. And I knew, okay, if we really care about, from a purpose perspective, getting people moving, great if someone else is. And I knew, well, better for us to find the white space. So we really leaned into what's not there. And what I saw, what we saw was not there, was this opportunity to put on amazing, compelling, irresistible events that were so much fun, but that had something for a variety of, of sporters, as we like to say, not just the half marathoner, not just the century cyclist. And so we decided to create what we call the Festival of Fitness, and it marries culture and music and fun with sport and fitness. And instead of doing just one event for one consumer, the framework is, hey, we want to have multiple fitness events so that you and your friends or family and or family can come participate. So we have a distance run as the headline, so to speak. We have our spirited sprint, which is more like a color run style. We have our strength event, which is more like a boot camp, and we have stretch, which is more like uh, yoga and even meditation, which we were testing in San Francisco. And this is just a one full day event? It begins as a full day, grows to a weekend, and it will grow to beyond. That doesn't exist right now. So we went with that for really good reasons. And I think we need to keep leaning into that. But we had moments of saying, well... But everybody knows about a half marathon. So why don't we just talk about the half marathon? Because everybody understands that. And you realize, okay, that's fine, but we're trying to have something that goes beyond that. So let's make sure we spend enough time talking about beyond that. So I look back at the last year. I think we made the right decision on product. I think we made the right decision in really caring to to give opportunity more than one type of athlete. And I think we probably needed to lean even more into something that was different. That's okay. It's okay if everyone doesn't understand it first. It's a process, right? So, you know, those are the kind of things you look at and say, well, were those moments when we shifted back to we're in East London and it's a half? Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds little. It is little um, as an example, but there would be there'd be one. Um Another big example, great example, is we learned a lot in 2012 facing our first disaster, so to speak, in, in New York City with the marathon when we were the weekend of the hurricane. And we learned so much about that not everything, that things could be a lot worse than they seemed, that we all needed the power of pause, that we needed to communicate more, we needed to say more about and explore the eventualities of what those outcomes could have been, whether the marathon went on or off. So and that was the marathon was going to take place simultaneously when was it Hurricane, it was Hurricane Sandy? Sandy. Yeah. So really hard time where we were aware what was not hard was where we were. What was hard what people were suffering through. But we were we in the city were slow. We were trying to do the right thing by the city, which early on in our mind was lift the city by raising money on television and and going forward. And what became clear over time is that just was not possible and wasn't what made sense. But in retrospect, we realized, we we wished we'd realized it earlier. We wished we'd communicated more. The beauty of this story, our first event for Virgin Sport in San Francisco was the weekend of 
the forest fires mm. in, in Napa, the wine country. Yeah. Why do I say the beauty? Because I had those lessons behind me. And what an opportunity it was to use those learned lessons. And if you'd asked me at any point in the last five years, if there would be, I would look back and appreciate those learnings to the depth that I appreciated them a month ago, I probably wouldn't have said yes. So how did you handle that? So what happened this time? So you, we heard about the fires that were happening in wine country in California. The festivals meant to take place that weekend. Um, what was your thought process when well, you heard that? Well, I had a big advantage. Um, one of our teammates lived in Santa Rosa, and she called me. I was away, We were had an event in London, and I was on my way back. And she called and said, I said, how's it going? And she said, it is so much worse than anybody realizes. And I knew early this was a really serious situation. And then you have to, again, be open to, well, let's see what you know, let's see what, see what happens. But we could see with the, it, it was easier. It, the smoke was really bad. It was clear that the resources were going to be needed elsewhere. And so it was easier in other ways. But um, I knew the warning signs because we had been through something similar. I knew the process. I knew the key stakeholders and, and the way to get the information we needed and the way to communicate. So those things all made a difference. Mm-hmm. And when you're um, talking about the people who would attend the festival, it seems like it is a very broad audience. And initially with the New York Marathon, it seems like you made it really accessible to that you know, average person who's just like, I want to run a marathon. And you don't, there, there isn't that pressure that you have to be a professional. Um, who are you specifically targeting in terms of age range or, you know, what, what are the types of people you're looking so for? So I think it, we all like to make sure we're not just trying to get everybody, right? From a, yeah. We're taught that as marketers. Uh, from, a, from a demographic, I actually think of a psychographic. So our psychographic are people who, who want to give things a go. Like people who say, okay, I, I, I just I want to live a I want to live a, a good life. I want to be open to fun things, but people beyond the psychographic, people have different ability levels at any different point. Not everyone can do a marathon. Not everyone can do a half marathon. Not everyone can do an Ironman. So the idea, but you have to have that spirit of I actually want to give it a go. I'm just a little intimidated, or I'll only go if my friends are going. Those are. Those are opportunities for us. So I think we, as a virgin brand, the energy and the spirit we have is definitely a youthful spirit to it. There's an exuberance. There's an enthusiasm. There's a positivity that I think we associate with 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 a, a younger demographic. But the reality is um, we think anybody can feel and think like that at any age. I mean, look at, you know, Richard, 67 years old. <laughs> and um, you know what? I th- we'd be happy to have a lot of uh, people his age and, and older who who have, you know, all in and want to come be part of something with that kind of spirit. So, you know, I think the demo's thought of is, is pretty um, – it's definitely a youthful spirit and a give-it-a-go spirit. And what your age is matters matters less to us. Um, that's that we have – I mean, the, the turnout's been pretty – it pretty highly millennial, but I hope, uh, and I think there really is a spirit and a, a, a very much a welcoming to, hey, it's 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 not about your age ever. Yeah. What is your dream for Virgin Sport? 
my dream is that we can help inspire a lot more people to get moving and moving on a regular basis. So the idea of events is never to leave it at the end of the event. If, if we have people do an event and then they never move again, it may look like we're successful because we had X number of people and we had X number of sponsors, but that's not going to fulfill our purpose. So what we really got to do is inspire people through these events that make them say, okay, I got to come back. Like I got, and we like to talk about hard earned fun. I think pure fun is um, not so sticky. I think getting people to take on a challenge, but have a good time in so doing, at least the wraparound of it is, is having a good time while doing. They may not love it at, at, in the middle of the 10th plank or the you know fifth mile, but they'll walk away satisfied. So if we can create environments where people just really want to come back and, and do it again, and most importantly, if we can create environments where we can connect people to ways that they can get out with other people on a regular basis and, and get, get moving, then we will have been successful. Hmm. Great. And uh, how would you, uh, if you had the opportunity to make some different decisions in your life, like how big ones, and you could live your life differently, is there anything that you think you would have changed? I think only more time with my kids and my husband, I think. Um, I, I can't say career-wise. Like, it's a very interesting question. New York Roadrunners, I've stayed for 17 years. My law firm, should I've stayed for 10 years. Should I've stayed, should I've left earlier? Should I've stayed longer? But I don't, I actually feel in both coast cases, it was just the right amount. And it, so it's more about seeing my kids grow up. Man, that is not, they are not going back. I'm going to work a long time. And you, people don't talk about that. We have so many opportunities to work. I'm going to work a long time. I'm not worried about that at all. But my kids are not going to be kids forever. And my husband and I do well getting time, and hopefully we'll have a lot of days. But those are the things you're never sure how much time you really have. And certainly with kids, they you see it right in front of your eyes that there's only so much time. So um, I think we've done pretty well. But, you, you know, I, I, will, I would take any extra minute I could get. What do you think is your mantra today? Something you tell yourself on a day-to-day basis? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I like you've got this. Like, you've got this. Like, you know, and I've had different ones over time. Um, What were they in those different stages in life? I definitely had a phase of, um, well, it's great because as a runner, you you always have mantras when you're running too. Running, I would often use, you know, actually, it's kind of interesting. It's a little bit of you've got this, but, you know, you know, you can do this. And I definitely work phase of, of, you know, sometimes you run into hurdles. We were trying to do a number of things at one point. New York Roadrunners, I remember thinking, you know, you get knocked down, you get up again, nothing's going to stop you. <laughs> but um, recently it's definitely, you know, you've got this. Like, yeah, there's a lot. There's always more you want to do, but, you know, you've just go. You can do this. Like, I, I definitely am in a good phase of, I love learning and exploration now, where I think I probably always wanted the answers hmm. when I was younger. And I have... So I, you're not, you don't have anxiety around the questions anymore. I try really not to have anxiety around the questions. Um, we're not perfect. But again, what I like about a startup is there's uncertainty. And it 
really, it's a little bit like being on a balance ball physically where you're moving and you learn to um, flow with the movement every day. It's not, there's not total clarity. And that's been really empowering. It's made me stronger, I think. Um, so, yeah, I try not to question the questions every day. <laughs> and remind me, your kids, you have son, daughter? Two boys. Two boys. Two boys. I'm glad they're growing up now because now is a time when boys have so much opportunity to be well-rounded citizens and not to be, not to think they have, I don't know that boys ever did, but they had a lot of advantages back in the day, right? And and now, you know what? They got to get out there and work hard like everybody else and They've got to prove themselves like everybody else in the areas that they really want to go after in their lives, and they're—I'm really lucky—they're good. They're good young men, um, but it's a lot of fun. It's fun to have the other gender because you learn a lot. <laughs> and how would you classify yourself as a leader? Definitely collaborative. Um, definitely at my team's side. I—I I like people. I love working with people. So I'm. I'm uh I respect everybody equally. Like I don't in terms of um often it's experience difference, right? Between as the years go on between me and somebody else and I love every voice. I want to hear the straight out of school voice. I want to hear I definitely want to hear the voice of the person that has a different um communication style and a different way of thinking than I do. So I'm extremely open and um, I definitely think I'm authentic I don't try to be some <laughs> superpower by any stretch I'm pretty pretty uh, I bring everybody that wants to be on the journey on the journey that's for sure were you always very comfortable with that sort of leadership style I was because again I think there's something in being the oldest of seven and there's mm. something of being the girl, not even woman at the time, on boys' teams. Um, and I'm wired that way. I think that as leaders, what we have to learn is to have a bit of the ability to flex to, to how other people are, to get the most out of them. So you have a way you may be wired, but you need to train the other areas, not to be your, your default, but to be to get the best out of other people. But I've always been open, very open, and again, that's not the best for everybody. Some people, yeah. you know, don't want to want to want to be less involved, perhaps. Yeah, well, that's great. I think there's um, there's a lot of people that I talk to who have are torn about, funnily enough, being authentic, because there is still that stereotypical kind of model of a leader where you have to be ultra aggressive, you have to be overconfident, and um, especially in certain male-dominated industries. And so I know people who have a really hard time because they say, I don't fit into that box. Like, yeah. I try, and that's something like myself, too. And I'm like, I'm not that aggressive, and I'm not going to walk into a room and overstate everything. And um, sometimes, though, that, if you feel like that backfires. Well, it's such a great, that we are at such a great time because I think there's a much more, we are heading toward better gender parity. We are, we are at a time when, when, when I think people appreciate 
more of a marrying of who you really are in life and who you are at work. And I think what's most important is never look at what's in front of you. Because if you try to match what is in front of you or be what is in front of you, it's not going to get you very far because it's going to really limit you. If that's who you are, fantastic. But a lot of areas of life, you're going to be different than the people who have succeeded in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to try to say, what am I best at? How do I be that? And you know what? Not everyone's going to like it. You have to learn your audience, that said. So if you're working with investors, you're working with highly analytical people. I may be more on the creative and the in the vision side. They don't want the big <laughs> story and the the um, compelling vision. They want a little bit of that, and then they want to know about the numbers, right? So you learn how to speak to, you learn how to, I don't actually mean speak to, you, you learn how to provide what different kind of people need from you. So as a leader, you need to develop that well-roundedness, right? So you need to know with a driver personality, give them the facts and tell them how you're moving forward. They don't want to know all the rest, unless it's critical for some reason. <laughs> the highly analytical wants to know the facts and that they've got a little bit of time to think about it. They don't want to know you've made the decision and you're just telling them, asking them a question, you want to know the answer in two seconds. The highly expressives, they need a little bit of the color. They don't want just, okay, the facts and 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 uh, you know, here's the decision or your input. They want to know why does this matter, right? Or or you know, again, some of the colors. So I think as a leader, you you should be who you really are. At the same time, you have to learn how to it's empathy. Empathy. Yeah. Other people think yeah. differently than you, so don't try to make them be you or think like you or accept what you're saying in the way that you want to say it without regard to the way they're going to hear it. So to me, that's a big difference. You're being who you are, but you're aware of what's most effective for each person mm -hmm. because they might feel overwhelmed by, by your approach if it's a different approach. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I have a last question around this idea of legacy and you know, I think of legacy, sometimes it's an outdated word where you think of the, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and legacies used to mean the property and the money that you leave for your children and your children's children. But I think we're at this really interesting time now where legacy is the impact that you make on the world. And that's what people think of when they think of what I want people to remember me for. Um, and it's also an interesting time where more and more people can build their legacies from nothing. Yeah. You don't have yeah. to come from a well-off family or anything. So what is the legacy that you want to leave and, um, you know, that impact and that mark you want to make on the world? I think it's, it comes all the way into a person-by-person -person thing. Everybody I've spent time with, have I, have I helped make them better? Have I been fair to them? Have I supported them? Have I helped them see an opportunity for themselves? Have I helped them think of a different way? And then in aggregate, you know, we can't touch everyone as deeply as we might want to, 
But in aggregate, it was my time spent, is my time spent, I guess when we look all the way back, was it spent on things that mattered for other mm-hmm. people, that mattered for our planet? Because I, I, I certainly worked to have, to have it. My time had mattered first at home, then with my colleagues, then with our, our, our audiences. And if I can have spent my time that way, then that's the legacy I care about. I love that. And I think one of the things that um, I've learned and I see people as they go through this journey and they say that moment of stress and anxiety, those, it disappears when you stop focusing on yourself and you really start thinking about um, the people you can affect, the change that you can create, and it's, it's so much bigger than you as that one person. I'll tell you, um, even just listening to you, I, I promise you, you are mega talented. And I think this is so <laughs> many people. Like, they're mega talented. We all have our different talents. Don't, don't, like, we, we waste our time if we're trying to, to apply those to somebody else's standard or end goal. And how do we apply our superpowers? How do we apply our mega talents to something that we think matters? It doesn't really matter if someone else thinks it matters. If we think it matters, then that's, that's worth, <laughs> worth putting our time and effort against. What is your superpower? Good question. <laughs> um, I really see the best in everybody. I see talent all over the place. And maybe it's because, and maybe that's why I feel so strongly talking to you and talking to so many just mega talented people I talk to every day. I feel like you're so talented. And it's been great working with Richard. He's so talented. He didn't try to be. He was. He had a hard time being dyslexic, right? That, that story is the story all the time. So I definitely see people's strengths. And and so I try very hard, and it's not always easy, especially in a startup, but I try really hard to put round ha- pegs and round holes. I don't try to force people into boxes if that's not where their their talents and superpowers are, so I see a lot of I see a lot of talent in every in in everybody, yeah. just different talents. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And the way that I wrap up every show is just something called the one thing, okay. because it it only takes one person or one moment or one thing to really completely change someone's life. And uh, so I'll just ask you a quick question about one thing, and then just. Um, you can take like 30 seconds to answer okay. each one. So if there's one era that you could have grown up in that isn't the one that you did, uh, which would it be and why? It's probably a future era. <laughs> um, I think there's many intriguing pasts, but I'm really excited about where we're going. Yeah. You know, and now I work with, with these amazing colleagues who are getting ready to go to space. And they really think that we're going to have a different view when we look back on the world of, of our role in it. And I am really excited for that next phase of, of where this world's going. I, I think we're all going to be part of not only improving, but we're all going to need to be part of saving this, this planet. And, and I'm, I think that's going to be a moment of time that's... Um, extremely thrilling because it could be dangerous but we're gonna have to come together and make sure it's not and that it's better than ever so it feels like a real moment of uh communion uh and bringing together people and individual responsibility to a whole like never before so i'm kind of really excited about what's what's (laughs) ahead what is one truth you believe that others might not believe 
I really believe there's inherent good in everybody. I really do. I th I think um, I think people get really screwed up as the years go on, and I don't think everybody is is salvageable. I mean, we're living in a world right now where, man, like, how can we have another shooting? Like, it's just paralyzing, right? Um, but I believe that people start with a lot of a lot of good, and if we can find ways to help when people get the best out of everybody, then then that would be a really great thing. What's one person that you're extremely thankful for who is a major influence in your life? Definitely my family. I mean, my husband is so much my uh, steady counterpart and thoughtful partner, and our boys give us joy every day. And my, you know, my parents, my family, I love being one of seven. I really love being one of seven. <laughs> You know, I kind of feel for my kids. I, I thought I meant to have five, you know. I love being one of seven. So probably probably my family, and then I've been lucky to have really great mentors along the way too. Uh, who is one person, dead or alive, that you would love to have dinner with? You know, probably Barack Obama's <laughs> top of a lot of people's list. Um, I'd have to say that right now because I'm so intrigued. I know Richard Branson, you know, just spent several, you know, spent spent several days with them. So I know I get a little bit of sense of it, actually. But, you know, I think what's interesting right now is for someone like that, I'm so curious in the way we're going right now as, as a nation in terms of leadership. How, how does, how does, where are his wheels? How, what are his, how are his wheels turning? Like, what, what can he, what's he feeling like he can do? And I hope it's something other than just say that was my time and that was it. Um, so I'd have to say Barack Obama. What's one question that you wish people would ask each other more often? What can I do for you? And then finally, uh, what is one challenge that you can leave to our audience? Just a small kind of micro action that they could do today that could uh, leave a change in their own or someone else's life. Let's look forward, look, make the most of every day and, and look forward to tomorrow and leave the wake of the day before far behind, far behind the boat. Well, thank you so much, Mary. This was a really insightful and um, great interview for me personally because I just felt like I resonated so much with... Uh, so much of what you've gone through as well. Well, it's 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 been a privilege, and I can't wait to to talk more. But I'm excited for you for <laughs> everything in front of you, and I love that you're doing this podcast. Great, thank you. Thanks so much. There you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at 
LisaWorks, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X, on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.